0: You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So right before our Old Testament reading began today, it started at Malachi chapter 3. The verse before that is Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. There is a complaint, there's actually two complaints raised against God by the people of Israel about 400 years before Christ was born that sound like they could have been found on the lips of people in our country today. The first denied the law of God. It said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. In other words, the wicked prosper. So forget what God has said about right and wrong. Following God's will doesn't really seem to lead to a different outcome. I haven't seen him smite anyone for disobedience lately. In fact, since the cunning seem to do so well, perhaps that is the right way to behave after all. You know, if you can't beat them, join them, and the results speak for themselves. And this sounds a lot like our own culture, where the ends too often justify the means, and people are quick to abandon any absolute standard of morality. They're quick to abandon the law of God and to say that doesn't really work anyway. The rejection of God's law by people who make no claim to follow him should come as no surprise to us. That really is to be expected. Where the danger comes is where that idea begins to creep into our own minds, and we begin to reject God's law ourselves. We may not do it so overtly and openly as those in the culture around us, but so often there are moments where we began to evaluate God's law based on the seeming outcomes, about how it makes us feel, about the psychological pressures that it puts upon us, about what result comes when I'm following after God. For instance, one of the ways that this happens in our churches these days is around the issue of sexual morality. When we're calling people to obey God's standards for sexual morality, which says that lust itself is forbidden, that we cannot look upon a man or a woman and desire them in our heart without sinning against God, that sex is reserved for a married man and woman in the relationship that God has established. And sometimes it seems to us in the church that that just seems too hard of a standard. It doesn't really work in real life. And when we hear genuine stories of suffering from people whom we love who are trying to follow God's law, it makes us question whether or not that really is the right path, whether that really is the right way to go. And so out of Love, perhaps, or what we think is love, we can be tempted to seek out some justification for why that particular rule doesn't really apply anymore in our society. Or perhaps bring an example that's a little bit closer to home, because I think it's one that all of us struggle with every day. It's so hard to say no to things that we want to things that our society says that we actually need, to ways of spending our money that are all about our own pleasure and about lifting ourselves up, about getting a little bit ahead. We think that giving and generosity is good as long as it doesn't involve real sacrifice, as long as it doesn't perhaps lead to suffering. As long as it doesn't put us behind the standard of living of our neighbors. But when we are called by God to do justice and mercy by saying no to what we want in order to give to those who have nothing, we are tempted to ignore that rule, to come up with some justification for why it's okay for me to cling to wealth. So often we want to relax God's laws. To borrow a phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what we often want to preach to ourselves and to those around us is the doctrine of cheap grace. In his own words, cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In other words, if I just believe that God forgives sins, that's enough to have my sins forgiven. The church which holds the correct doctrine of grace has, it is supposed, ipso facto, a part in that grace. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. And when I looked at this passage from The Cost of Discipleship this week, it struck me anew that what he says it denies is the incarnation of the word of God. Here in this Advent season, that stood out to me. Because I would have expected when he's talking about cheap grace, especially with his Lutheran background, that he would have said it was a denial of the cross of Christ. Isn't that the spot where we see that suffering is necessary? That we find out that suffering is is part of the way to salvation. But he points to a denial of the incarnation. Bonhoeffer knew what the prophet Malachi also knew. You cannot cling to sin and welcome the king, or even admit that he's actually Lord. The incarnation had not yet occurred when Malachi wrote his prophecies, of course, but the second accusation from that chapter 2, verse 17, shows how denying God's law inevitably leads to denying God himself. The people were asking, where is the God of justice? a cynical question where the answer is he's absent, he's gone. Because we look around and see the flourishing of the wicked, God must not be present here anymore. In the Old Testament reading that we had from the book of Malachi, beginning in chapter 3 verse 1, contains God's answer to this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You ask where the God of justice is, he is coming. It's the answer to the people to look for his coming, to remember that he is coming. But, of course, he's coming in his own time because he's God. Malachi wrote these words a bit more than 400 years, probably, before the birth of Christ. And, but Jesus said that this particular prophecy was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. That that first line, the messenger who is coming to prepare the way, that was pointing to John the Baptist and his ministry of repentance in the wilderness. It's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. Jesus actually quotes the specific passage from Malachi and says, yes, this is John. And it was not uncommon for kings in the ancient world to send someone before them to prepare the way. There was no interstate system in the ancient Near East. And so they would send someone ahead to make sure that the route was swift and safe that as they're coming with their retinue, that the roads are sufficient, that they're cleared of any who might hinder his coming. And so when Jesus named John as the one who was preparing the way for the Lord and his greater messenger of the covenant, it showed what kind of route he wished to take. John's ministry, of course, wasn't to do anything with the physical land around him. It wasn't to, to actually build roads or to clear out brigands. John's ministry was to call people to repentance. Where the king wants to go is into the hearts of his people. And repentance prepares the way. Because John knew that a heart that clings to sin cannot welcome the coming king. So John called the people to turn away from their sin as an act of preparation, a way that they could get ready to receive the Lord. He saw the coming of the one who is greater than him, and he wanted the people to be ready to recognize and obey him. And they could not do this while they are still holding on to sin, while they refuse to give up that which prevents them from recognizing Jesus as king. You see this all throughout the ministry of Christ. Those who repent, those who recognize their sin, those who know that they need the Savior, look to Him and call out to Him as the Son of David, as the one who is the King. And those who are so certain that they are walking in the path of righteousness, who do not see their sin, who refuse to turn away from it, don't even recognize who it is that is among them. The same thing is true for us. The Christian life is entered into through repentance and it continues with repentance. Over and over again, we are called to recognize and confess the sin that is in our heart. The sin that keeps us from properly recognizing and acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Sometimes that means really big, obvious sins that we know immediately are sinful. Sometimes their sins are more subtle. They're small ways that we find ourselves denying Christ's rule in our life. And often, especially with the latter, we find ourselves thinking, you know, we don't really have to get rid of it completely. I can keep it under control, you know, as long as it doesn't happen too often, as long as it doesn't disrupt my life too much, as long as the results, the consequences of this sin in my life are not too severe, then you know what, it's probably okay. I can sort of keep it as my pet and pull it out when I want it and put it away when I'm done with it. But that's not how things work. If you try to keep a pet sin around, it will eventually devour you. And there is, for some reason, there's part of us that thinks it's worth it. There's part of us that recognizes that actually turning away from sin and and seeking to get rid of the sin in our lives is going to hurt and it's going to be painful. It's going to involve death of a part of us. But I promise that it is worth it. The joy of welcoming the king is far greater than any pleasure you can derive from sin you cannot cling to the sin and also welcome the king. You can't have it both ways. Is there a sin that you cling to? Do you pull out gluttony from time to time? Or greed? Pursuing things with your wealth that you know are not what God has actually called you to? Is lust something you think you can sort of pull out and keep in your pocket for days when you feel alone and lonely? Is your use of your time something that you think is your own? And you stay busy all the time so that you don't actually have to face up to what God is calling you to. Or you seek after mindless entertainment hour after hour. The last one is hard for me. My brain wants to be entertained. But it's not worth it. It sounds like it would be good. It seems like it's something that would bring life and joy, but it doesn't. It hinders the coming of the king into my own heart. What is it for you? Follow the advice of John. Repent turn away from your sin and oftentimes what this means is confessing your sin to another Christian. There are times where we are supposed to confess our sin to God as well. We always confess our sin to Him. But there are also times where we really need to go tell somebody else about it. Because part of what happens in doing that is it takes our own self-image and it allows it to die a little bit of my righteousness, the front that I have to hold. This is part of the sin itself, that I have to have this veneer where I am not willing to admit my sin because if I do that, then people will think less of me. But what does it matter what people think if the king is coming? What does it matter if he looks at you and finds joy in you? Confess your sin to me or to one another, but name it and it has less power over you. It does mean a type of dying. It means a dying to your own self-righteousness. It means a dying to thinking that you have it all together. But it's a death that is worth it because it's a death that leads to a resurrection, to the welcoming of the King, to the fullness of joy that He wishes to give you in the life to come and right now. It is better to follow after Jesus than to cling to your sin. But part of the reality that we have to face as Christians as well is sometimes it feels like the sin clings to us, that we desire with our heart to see it gone from us, but we can't seem to get mastery over it. We can't seem to just push it away by by just an act of, of our willpower. We keep coming back to it despite the fact that we don't want it anymore in our lives. The truth is that you can't get rid of all the sin in your life no matter how much you repent, no matter how much you confess. And you need to know this right now in order to have this message of repentance be good news. Because if you hear this message and you hear, I must do this before Jesus will be present in my life at all, then it's not good news. Our bishop, when he came and preached the last couple times, he's reminded us that try harder is never good news. And you see this in this passage as well. The people are called to repentance. They're called to prepare their hearts. But then in Micah 3.2, it says that when the messenger of the covenant appears, not the initial messenger that's preparing the way, the messenger of the covenant is a different person, someone who is distinct from that first messenger, someone who is clearly greater than that first messenger. And when he appears, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. No matter how much we try to cleanse ourselves, on the day when that messenger arrives, on that day when Jesus arrives, Still, he will arrive in our hearts as a purifying and refining fire. If you cling to your sin, you won't welcome that. You will not desire to have him come into your life. Not really. Maybe with your mouth, but not with your whole life. Because you if you're clinging to your sin, then you will not welcome the cleansing that he brings. The imagery that's used is of harsh soap and a refiner's fire. The cleansing that we need will be painful at times. But if you understand the depth of joy that comes from loving the king and being loved by him, you will know and understand as well that the pain is worth it. That what he is offering is purity and cleanliness. He's offering joy He's offering love. He's offering himself. Because Jesus knew that it was worth suffering to set God's people free from sin. He took that suffering upon himself. We look to the cross, of course, but but even in the incarnation, the eternal God, who had never known suffering, who had lived in eternal love and joy forever, instead became a little baby who was hungry and cried and wept, who was subject to all the frailties of living in a human body, who probably fell down and skinned his knees. That sounds like such a small thing, but can you imagine the eternal God of the universe subjected himself to skinned knees to being hungry and feeling pain. And he did this because he knew that becoming like us was how he would save us so that we could be like him. He would become like us so that we could be like him, so that we could be lifted up. He would take on the frailties of living as a human being, as a man, so that we could be lifted up and be with God in eternal relationship with him. And then, of course, he walked that life knowing that at the end of that life that he lived, that he was walking towards the cross, that he was walking towards suffering and the passion. And he went to the cross for our sake. He went to the cross as that perfect sacrifice for sin. Our verse in Malachi says that um, in chapter 3, verse 4, says that the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And if this, of course, talks about the purifying that is happening that God is doing among his priests. But it also, when we look at the Hebrews and we see about Jesus himself as the great high priest, we know that the offering that was offered up, the sacrifice that was the perfect sacrifice, was Jesus himself. And he knew it was worth it. He knew that the the cross was worth it for the joy that was set before him. And that joy was, of course, his own being raised up and lifted up to the Father, but also it was so that we might be raised up and lifted and be with the Father as well forever and ever. This is what Christ has done for us. This was how serious sin was. This was how important grace was, how costly grace was. And this is what he gave to us in himself. When we look at the birth of Christ at Christmas, we cannot comprehend, we cannot make grace something that is cheap. We cannot comprehend the the vastness and the depth of the love of God that he has for us, that he was willing to come as a man and suffer on our behalf so that we might be free from sin. The great cost paid by Christ should lead us to value what he has done above all else. To reject sin with all that is in us. We are helped in this, of course, by the continued presence of Christ with us. That he has given us his Holy Spirit. If, we, if you have turned from your life of sin, if you've taken that, that step of repentance, that first step of repentance and, and gone to Christ, if you've been baptized into the Holy Spirit, then you have a freedom from sin. It does not control you and have power over you, but it is a continual call to repentance that is given to us. He demands that we repent and obey Him as Lord, that we welcome Him as the Lord that calls us to purity. And then we've got the painting over here again this week, a little bit more of it revealed. And that refining fire here that's being poured out also becomes the oil of anointing all at the same time, and the Menorah here represents that barrier that was between the, the, uh, before the Holy of Holies where we are brought before Christ as sanctified and purified, cleansed. And we are able to give an offering of praise and thanksgiving to receive what he has given us and also to offer back to him the thanks and the joy that we have as we are filled in purity by what God has done for us. This is what God calls us to all the time. But this is what we could remember as we walk through this Advent together and as we prepare for Christmas, is that he came, he suffered so that we might be free from sin, and he calls us to repent. Turn away from your sin. It's not worth it. And then we also remember in this season of Advent that Jesus is coming again. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 reminds us that, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And it lists a bunch of sins that he's coming to judge. And let me tell you, it's not an exhaustive list. Yours is included. Mine is included. But when we recognize that the coming King loves us so deeply, When we desire with our hearts to turn away from sin, then we understand that His judgment, the purity, the refining fire that He sends is good news. Christ is coming again and we will be free from sin once for all. We will be stripped away from all that we cling to. It will be taken from us at that point, whether we want it to be or not will be scoured clean. And the question that is before us as we enter into this time of waiting in Advent is will you welcome that day or will you dread it? Will the day of judgment, that means the the tearing away of every sin that you cling to, be good news for you? Has your heart repented of your sin? Have you turned away from it so that you can welcome the king? Because you cannot cling to your sin and also look forward to the day of his coming. The two stand in opposition to one another. So repent, turn away from your sin, because the king is coming. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.